here is singer-songwriter, broadcaster, audio-video artist, entertainment agent, and your host for the Dharmic Evolution. It's the master storyteller himself, James Kevin O'Connor. And welcome Ghana over in India. Hey, we're on the Ghana platform. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and we're officially, it's now official. We are on the Ghana platform, which uh, supports about 150 million listeners in India. And the show Dharmic Evolution has been making its rounds in India for for a couple of years now. We have a a good following there, but uh, now we're getting an immediate um, bump and a lot of interest in the show. Thank you, my friends in India, for supporting the Dharmic Evolution. It's so good to be with you today. And uh, today, um, before we get into our guest for today, I would like you guys to please, please forward this show to somebody that you care about that may enjoy the Dharmic Evolution. And if you're looking for the right platform for you, if it's not Ghana, it may be Apple Podcasts or it may be Spotify or uh, Pandora or something like that. But you can go over to dharmicevolution.com, check out the website, sign up for your favorite platform, and every Friday morning, the show will come right to your phone. And uh, I just love when that happens. So what do we got going on today? We've got something really interesting. A man who writes amazing books about the music business and the artists in that business. And his books span all genres of music. I mean, he's into everybody. Goes behind the scenes of legendary musicians. And his new book, celebrating his 50th published book on this show, The Dharmic Evolution, is titled Behind the Boards and features behind-the-scenes stories from some of country music's most notable producers with stories behind hit songs from Tim McGraw, Clint Black, Big & Rich, Vince Gill, Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, and so many more. And he's also into the rock genres, uh, Teddy Riley, hip-hop, and you name it, this gentleman has covered everybody. So get ready, you better strap up your seatbelts, because we're taking a ride today from the Music City on the Dharmic Evolution with Jake Brown. Jake Brown, welcome to the Dharmic Evolution. Thank you for having me on, I appreciate it. Yeah, 50 books, man. What a uh, what a time to celebrate. I don't know how you did it, but um, it's incredible. I went on Amazon to look at all your work, and it's really, really uh, amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you said you just moved. So are you a new Nashvillian uh, or in the vicinity resident? No, we we uh, have I've lived here 18 years and uh, okay. I actually moved here with two published books in uh, 2003. And so 48 of them have happened in the last 18 years. Wow. So this town's been very charmed for me. Um, we live in we've lived in another part of Hendersonville, and my wife and I just moved to a new one. So we're we're just uh, before COVID, thankfully. But uh, it you know juggling all that stuff with with everything else that's been going on has been definitely a uh, an interesting summer. Yeah, congratulations on the new digs, and uh, for both of you, hopefully being healthy and getting through this. Uh, it's been a little scary time, but um, yeah, the book. So how did you? You know, just to start, how did you get the idea to do this? And did you have any vision in at the outset of this that it would turn into this? Um, yeah, it's a series that actually I, I first started writing when I first moved here. It was called Behind the Boards, but it was a rock producers focus series. And so um, I, I then basically went around for three or four years interviewing everyone. Jack Douglas, Don was you know, Eddie Kramer, Bob Ezrin, just all these amazing rock names. There's over 40 of them in that two volume set that Hal Leonard did. And then about 10 years, eight years lapsed basically. Um, and my dog died, uh, Hanover and I was extremely depressed about it and I wanted to cheer myself up uh, as best I could. And so I thought, why not do a behind the boards Nashville? And so, um, then I went about contacting like I do all of the different country producers that I could get a line on or that I had already interviewed for another series of mine behind me here called National Songwriter. And basically from there, I started reaching out to people like Chris Stapleton's producer, Dave Cobb, 
and others um, early on that signed on. He was one. Paul Worley was one. Um, Shane McNally I already had. Ross Copperman, Luke Laird. Uh, gosh, Zach Crowell. These are all of the, the the track guys, ironically. So country music has two types of producers. They have what's called track producers, which are guys that basically play all of the instruments and do pretty much the entire track in their home studio. Uh, you have other producers that are more of the old school or traditional vibe of getting a band uh, together for an afternoon and they'll knock out three and four number one hits in that afternoon. There's a funny story in the book from Darius Rucker. He talks with... Uh, Frank Rogers, who's he and Brad Paisley producer about the first record they made together post Hootie, you know, when he had just come to Nashville. Yeah. And in, in an afternoon, they knocked out like three or four of his number one hits, what came to be those. And uh, he looked over him at the end of the day and said, man, if we were in Hootie, we'd still be eating drum sounds you know, just in that first day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And it just kind of spiraled outward. I got very fortunate. Um, there's a lot of unique relationships within country music production as well that are these like quarter century, 25 year lineage kind of things where you'll have uh, like, for instance, um, I mentioned Brad Paisley and Frank Rogers were together 15 years, but guys like Tim McGraw and Byron Gallimore have been together 25 years. Kenny Chesney and Buddy Cannon have been together 25 years. Um, Miranda Lambert and Frank Lydell were together 15 years. Uh, Jason Aldean and Michael Knox were together 15 years. Tony Brown, uh, the great Tony Brown, and um, George Strait were together, got 23 years and 43 number ones. So <clears throat> there's a unique arc there. Uh, and, and that's how the book began to bear itself out because you had to like the common threads of the type of music they produced, but you also have a huge number of subgenres within country that we cover all of here. Um, and then, you know, then I got into some older school names like Norbert Putnam, who produced, you know, Margaritaville and was Elvis Presley's last bass player. Tony Brown, whom I just mentioned, was Elvis Presley's last keyboard player. Uh, and a lot of these guys started on the other side of the glass or the board, if you will, depending on the studio. Uh, I see yours in the background there. You can know what I'm talking about. So you yeah. have, for example, um, Dan Huff, who's a legend in rock and every kind of, you know, guitar form that there is. You've heard Dan, whether you know it or not. And he uh, started out basically under, Mutt, well, started out in the 80s, but then he was working under Mutt Lang in the 90s. Mutt Lang pushed him, started out with Megadeth and kind of made his way into country production. He met Keith Urban when his very first album was being made. Justin Niebank is also in the book. So these are other relationships that have gone that 20-year mark. But Dan started out behind the board, you know, working for the best producers in town. Guys like Jim Ed Norman, James Stroud, who are both in the book proudly. Uh, Josh Leo was a session guitar player. Paul Worley, Dan Huff, whom I just mentioned, um, and and others. James Stroud was a drummer. So you also see how they made their journey from really either wanting to be a star, like say a guy like Jeff Stevens came here to be a country music uh, star. He wound up being a songwriter and then a producer. Buddy Cannon started out as a songwriter, became a producer. Um, he's produced Willie Nelson for the last 15 years as well. So what the book tries to do is give you both the backstory behind all, and there's other names I'll try to touch on throughout the interview, but it gives you the backstory of a lot of these amazing songwriters that turn into producers, musicians that were session players that turn into producers. Some were stars like Clint Black, who went on to basically produce his own catalog past the first five or six albums. Um, and it tells you also the stories of a lot of these long-term star building relationships where these producers and this star that they're most known for working for started out, neither of them. Taylor Swift and Nathan Chapman's another great example of that in the book. Uh, Nathan Chapman was a demo producer at this little shack, quite literally behind Taylor Swift's uh, writing house. And she'd bring him over songs and they, you know, they produced in that little room starting out like 15 and, you know, some of those really early white horse and those really early Taylor Swift hits. So the book also gives you the behind the scenes story of most of country music's biggest stars and how they got their start especially of the last 20, 25 years, 30 years, um, how vulnerable they were when they first started out. Were they nervous about singing, how they grew more confident, how in some cases like a Kenny Chesney or a Tim McGraw, they grew into legitimate co-producers because they had such a vision for their sound. And these guys were smart enough, these producers, to say, hey, man, wherever you want to go, <laughs> you know, and, and off they went. Uh, so it's really a remarkable story. Over the course of 30 different producers, we go back really far. Like I mentioned, there's guys like Ray Baker in the book who did like Mo Bandy and all that classic honk talk stuff from the 70s, uh, Merle Haggard, Freddie Powers. So you really get a, a, a general multi-generational look uh, really over the last 40, 50 years of country music. And there's over 300 number ones in the book as well. Wow. You know, uh, do you think there's some kind of a correlation to 
you know, either Nashville or the South in general, you know, and I, I, the, the immediate example, of course, comes to me is Elvis Presley, how he yes. had longevity with his manager for like pretty much his whole career. And, and yeah. I think his bandmates as well. I mean, he just kind of had that. And you mentioned like all of the current artists kind of follow that same path. There's, there's well, some- Merle Haggard and the Strangers would be one example, right? That band was for 55 years together before he, you know, passed away. Uh, and there's others, too. Yeah. Yeah. So there must be uh, something to that. It's like, you know, what what's not broken, you know, don't mess with it. You know, just I got a funny story for you, actually, if you want on that. Tony Brown um, was telling me when he and George Strait were at the height of their run there in the 90s and the first decade of the millennium. Uh, basically, so let me give you a very brief explanation of how this process works for any of your viewers that don't understand. So Nashville, in my Nashville Songwriter book series, which has three volumes, including the upcoming one, 90 songwriters, over 800 number one hits. It chronicles and profiles exclusively every hit songwriter in Music Row and really gives you the backstory of this incredibly unsung group of heroes of songwriters that sit on this two-lane street called Music Row, uh, 16th and 15th, 16th, and I guess you could say 17th Avenue South north and they basically all day long sit in these houses and write number one songs those number one songs then go to the music publishers they write for who then take them to song pluggers producers sometime directly to the artists uh there's an example in the book with tim mcgraw's uh, humble and kind laurie mckenna just texted that to him you know but but the process by which the song is often picked by the producer uh jason aldean's uh producer michael knox talks about listening to two thousand songs in between albums george Straits, it was three thousand songs for for tony brown uh luke bryan and jeff uh, you know jeff stevens and jody stevens that produced luke bryan they listen to two to three thousand songs you whittling that down to 30 that the artist is maybe going to make a final choice from so it gives you an appreciation for the competition but also the exorbitantly huge enormous responsibility that these producers are often given when you talk about longevity of being master hit pickers for like 25, 30 years. Think about how often country changes and trends, you know, hip hop has come in in the last few years, rhythm, Carrie Underwood has had a lot of success with, uh, you know, uh, also like Dirks Bentley and of course Sam Hunt, Zach Crowell produces Sam Hunt along with Shane McNally, um, Casey Musgraves. You've got all of these different subgenres that these writers have to write for if they're not writing with a country artist, which traditionally was more rare. Uh, Nashville is really the only genre you see on a music video, uh, the name of the artist or the band, the name of the song, the name of the label, maybe the director, and then it's a songwriter. You don't see that in rock. You don't see that in R&B. You don't see that in hip hop. So it, it underscores how important that, re- that rapport and relationship is. But the producer's relationship is sort of really the baton starts with the songwriter. It gets passed to the producer. It's the producer's job to take that song all the way through the entire process of recording, the editing, the mixing, um, all of the performances they have to get out of a song, you know, an artist sometimes. On the other hand, sometimes someone will come in like a Kelly Clarkson and knock it out in one or two or three takes and they're done and gone. And yeah. a lot of times older country producers that are more traditional want to stay there and hammer that song until they get 30 or 40 takes to work from. So it just, you know, it, it runs all over the map. You also get people like Casey Musgraves who co-writes right there in the writing room with Luke Laird and Shane McNally and a lot of what they create right there are Ross Copperman and Dirks Bentley becomes what you hear on the radio. So it, it can be a long process or it can be one that boom like that. They write it in two, three hours and it's out the door. Sam Hunt with Body Like a Back Road, they took about a year to write that song, but then they released it within a weekend of finishing its recording. And it was on, I think it was like uh 50 god it was almost a year that song was number one you know it was it was a record shattering kind of thing so it's amazing how these little momentary inspirations or in other cases songs that take a very long time to get right you know both stand the test of time uh and and that's another thing within country music is that you know you got to bear in mind you have streaming now so you have all of these like millennial kids that either because they would normally go to the concert with their parents and discover the artist live can't with the COVID shutdown Right. So with this with this book, it's got, you know, 600 pages. Uh, if you want to read about Tim McGraw while you're listening to his catalog, you can do that on the flip side. If you're not interested in Tim McGraw and you only want to hear Taylor Swift, you can listen to her. But it's a more interactive way to read and kind of learn about these artists from either the academic side, if you're an interested aspiring producer, or if you're just an artist and you want to kind of know about how all these great hits that you grew up on were created. Um, and it really takes you really in-depthly into that process from front to back. What is your uh, take on the um, streaming situation, Jake, versus, 
you know, the delivery of music, like where do you think we're going? Is it going to be streaming? CDs are like sort of, I don't want to say they're completely going away. Um, yeah, they're, you know, they're almost really, gone. <laughs> they're just really, it's, it's very disturbing. And, you know, vinyl's been coming back and CDs are going away. And then you have streaming, of course. Um, and the, the last bastion of capitalism left to the artist was live performances. And now that's gone temporarily. Yeah, temporarily. So, um, so where do you see the whole music industry going? Let's say we recover from COVID and everything's back, you know, oh, and we're gosh. doing, we're doing, you know, shows again, big shows. Um, yeah. is it still going to be have, like, I don't have the crystal ball, the people I interview do, you know, yeah. so all I can really do is give you. I would be pretty presumptuous of me to try to, to guess something like that. What I can give you is just a little bit of my own opinion from conversations I've had as recently as this spring with a lot of these 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 uh, hit makers. Um, the feeling is that streaming has won. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to beat the platform. You're not going to beat the convenience. You're not going to be able to really beat the economics of it because it's like, remember when phones were on that minute by minute plan and then they went to flat rate? Yeah. It's almost like songs have come that same way. So where it used to be an album and you bought 12 songs, even on say iTunes, the artist was still getting 99 cents you know, less whatever the, the, you know, the commissions were to the label or to the publisher or whomever, the songwriters and the artists were still making money because right. they were still left with maybe say 50, 40 cents of that song, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you multiply it times millions, uh, you do still have that. But uh, I would say about 30% of record sales for a weekly billboard post from like album site or now stores about 70 or digital, whether it be streaming or downloading. Um, you also had this phenomenon for a long time called ringtones, which has kind of gone away. Yeah. Ringtones was a really, really interesting bridge for country, uh, especially country rock, a lot of genres that, you know, were a little bit lost in the woods on where it was all heading because, okay, wow, now I can, it's a little bit less than 99 cents, but like say I get 25 cents every time somebody uses my, my, you know, 10 seconds of my song on their phone ringer. So yeah. it was like, you know, so you've had experiments like that that have helped to sort of monetize it, but um, it's all going to, you know, really live recording, uh, excuse me, live performing is really the last, like you said, bastion of real, you know, capitalism. And, and, you know, bear in mind too, a lot of the CDs that are sold are sold on the road. Right. Um, right. You know, so, you know, bands want to sign them after the shows or they sign them before the shows and either way. Uh, another thing that you're going to continue, I think to see, is more and more and more of like a uh, 360 type deal, which means that labels didn't used to get a piece of a live show. Now they do. Yeah. Uh, whether it be this, you know, merch table sales or whether it be a piece even of the door sometimes. So the, the models are really changing, but you do also have like a lot more independent avenues for people. Uh, you know, obviously all of the ability to just put your own music up and stream it. Uh, you know, certainly iTunes. I mean, CD Baby is a little bit obsolete now, but those they were the model that started it. Yeah. Um, YouTube used to pay. I'm not quite sure if they pay any. I had a client. I wrote a book a couple years ago with a country rapper named Big Smo, and his big breakout hit was called Kicking It in Tennessee. And I think it's had like 13, 15 million views. And other artists within that kind of self-made country rap is an example of a genre. Ray Riddle's in the book here, and Sam Hunt is sort of a rap. He's more of a spoken thing. But Sam Hunt's an example. He was just slapping up digital mixtapes every time he'd finish them and they would download like, you know, millions of copies. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, we need to find a way to do this to make some money back. So, um, but there's a lot more independence to it. Um, that helps to introduce people. But uh, even some of the people that I've interviewed that, that, you know, you think, oh, wow, American Idol or The Voice, they could do these shows and then get a record deal. It's all still very, very much packaged within the network gets a piece of it by the time you you get done whittling off all the commissions you know it's a lot less than it used to be and among songwriters that affects a lot of songwriters too that make their money here off of royalties because the, the sales streams back in the 90s and even the first decade of the 2000s you had millions and millions of cd sales that are now uh, like you said dwindling to almost non-existence so all you're really left is you know live touring it's really it's had an impact uh I, it's been interesting this summer for me because i keep recording 
every week, the same studio downtown for these audiobooks I read for Blackstone, including, by the way, behind the boards, uh, Nashville volume one and two are out right now. Uh, both the, it's 60 hours almost of, of reading it was a nightmare to finish, but we got it done and out. And uh, they do a great job with that. But so that's also if you're not interested in reading 600 pages, you can listen to it. And if you want to just really be a visual person, go to YouTube. We've got over 100 videos with a lot of the different producers in the book. And they're short. They're three minute. The, the function of this book is that if you want to only listen to one chapter's worth of music, you can do that. Put it down. Pick it up in a week. If you hear a song on the radio, wow, how do they get that drum sound? Or on, on, you know, your, on your computer, on Spotify or whatever, you can look it up. It's a reference guide. It's entertaining. It's hopefully going to give you a 3d look at how country music is made behind the scenes in the studio though wow um speaking of the studio um yes, can you tell us any i'm sure you have a few good stories where you were you know you had the opportunity to get inside into some of these sessions and and witness uh, uh what was being made at the time any anything you want to share yeah on some okay. but you know I, well i'm i you know i have the benefit certainly not at these guys level i'm a, a producer songwriter myself um you know, okay. more of rock and kind of hybrid thing, but I'm in a studio myself two, three times a week. So especially with even just reading audiobooks, I'm I'm around when people are in there. It is uh in the case of a lot of the songs that are made in the country music realm, even within the book and their recollections, they happen so fast. Yeah. That, you know, Chris Stapleton's Tennessee whiskey was kind of a off the cuff thing dave cobb asked him what he wanted to play that day and he said let's go out and record some covers and they were at rca and they just you know boom two takes later they had a you know grammy winning career making hit uh so in this country book there's a little bit less romanticism to it it's really more of a business yeah um people come in there's the best session players in the world work here so it's really more the magic that you get in that kind of lightning in a bottle kind of moment where you know, Buddy Cannon talks about the great Buddy Cannon who did the forward for the book talks about really preferring to let six or seven guys sit in a circle and, and let them contribute, you know, to the compositional side of it, too, because a lot of times they're going to give you a lick, say, in that first or second take that might be a signature part of the of a song's opening. Um, you know, it's very interesting. You talk about the way that's monetized. Session players are played if I believe they're paid on union scale, sometimes triple scale and paid very well. But they do what's more or less called a work for hire. So when they contribute musically, even to that song could become a compositional part. They're not necessarily seeing a royalty with a lot of studios shut down right now. You're also seeing a big impact on sessions. Now you do have a lot of people that can work from home and that's the bridge. The other side of the book that we talk about is all of the digital generation of record making and the balance of the two. Um, I write a lot of other series that deal with studio recording in the studio is one. So when you ask about studio stories, I could better draw on that from other titles if you'd like than I could per se within country. Um, but, but yeah, you know, occasionally you do. I, I did a book years ago uh, with Kenny Aronoff, uh, who's, who's a pretty famous rock drummer, John Mellencamp and John Fogarty. And you've heard he's been on a hundred number one. So, I mean, I was over there with him a little bit of Blackbird and, you know, watching him work, but you know, a lot of times to be really honest, people have this kind of misnomer about the studio when people go into a recording studio, it's different than some of the books I write with people that made records in the 80s, the 70s, the 90s, where the budgets were like million dollar budgets. So there was time for that kind of stuff. Um, I do talk within the first couple behind the boards books. There's really some funny stories. Tom Weirman, uh, of course, produced Motley Crue's early catalog, Twisted Sister, really was responsible for that hair metal sound of the 80s. You know, he talks about doing Poisons Open Up and Say Ah, ah album, and C.C. DeVille would go off to smoke some crack and then come back in to do his solo. And they would spend eight or nine hours on this and pull out about 30 seconds of usable stuff. But and then when he wasn't screwed up, or, uh, you know, wasn't intoxicated, he'd come in and bang out stuff for hours. I did a book with Joe Satriani called Strange Beautiful Music. It was his musical memoir. Um, we went through every single record. Uh, that, rec that book is entirely about his studio making process. And it's pretty otherworldly if you know anything about Surfing with the Alien or, you know, any of those yeah, amazing great, albums. He great made. album, yeah. Uh, all, but the in the studio book series is really the most sort of honed or focused. I've done those with Anna Nancy Wilson from Art, Motorhead, Lemmy Kilmeister, the Tupac Shakur estate. Um, lots more stories there, especially like Tupac's world. You know, Death Row was a pretty 
notorious place. I mean, back then you're dealing in still analog, reel to reel. So whenever Tupac would want to punch something in versus now where you can slide over on a sort of a computer screen with a mouse and click the file that you want, back then you had to rewind the tape. And if the tape the tape was rewound too far, there's stories of engineers getting beat down by Suge Knight's sort of bodyguards and other things that had gotten in the way of them getting their 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 artists stuff on tape because it was so quickly going out the door. Um, it's not funny, but it was a reality. Uh, you obviously have that famous story of Eazy-E. I, I recounted this in the Death Row Chronicles, the BET uh, docuseries I was in, um, and Suge was in as well, interestingly, uh, confirming a lot of it. But we, you know, Eazy-E gets invited to a recording studio. Dr. Dre wants out of his contract with Ruthless. It's in the Straight Outta Compton movie as well. And basically, he's given a choice, uh, Eazy-E, between signing these releases or them, you know, basically threatening his life. They threaten his mother's life. I mean, all, he finally signs it after they beat him up. Uh, and that started this whole racketeering lawsuit. So there's stories from the hip hop realm that are a little bit more, advent, I guess, of that cinematic side. Um, on the musical side, what you do get are a lot of really magic moments though, uh, even in this book and the way that these artists and producers work together. Um, sometimes on something that starts off like Dirk Bentley Black was a voice memo that he sent to uh, Ashley Gorley and Ross Copperman, the producer, and boom, within three hours, they had a number one hit done. So, uh, you know, songwriters in this town talk about getting a lot of the ideas, driving to work, things that they hear in everyday conversation. And, and really within songwriters in Nashville, the Nashville songwriter's job is really to reflect the lives of the listener in the music and the lyric. So there's an especially close attention paid to what, like, say, Dallas Davidson calls speaking the language. Uh, or, you know, Red Akins and Dallas and, and, Red, and Ben Hayslip are the peach pickers. Their whole catalogs in this book is an example. So um, hopefully you really get a sense of both the backstories of these producers uh, from behind the boards, Nationals to bring that back, as well as the lives of these stars uh, in terms of what they're like in the studio, how quick they work, how long they take, how much fun they have, what the struggles were, um, what say songs they had no idea were going to be number ones that wound up being huge hits, the expectations of knowing you have a huge hit on your hand and how much more pressure that is for everyone because the label's kind of hitting the clock, you know, going, when are we going to get this? And it's it's just an incredibly competitive business. Um, and it's remarkable to see how these amazing talents have lasted as long as they have in it given that yeah how did you um get connected to like music in general you're, you're a songwriter and you're in the studio so when you were yeah like did you start really early and like how what shaped you to be because you're, uh, you're pretty eclectic in that you're doing hip-hop and you're doing you're doing rock and you're doing country and you know that's and how you stay employed as a book author yeah <laughs> <laughs> work work in multiple genres and try to get your fan base as diversified as possible within those um yeah yeah i was I'm, i'll give you this background with that in any way trying to compare it to the talents of the people i write with so understand it's more one benefit i do have is because i'm a multi because i play several instruments i can speak musically more in that same language to these producers and these songwriters and musicians and bands and artists, et cetera. And it gets me a little more access because they know that they're talking to someone that can translate what they're going to tell me into something that a musician could read and understand. And there's a distinction between a lot of times the reason people don't want to open up is because they're used to these kind of magazine fluff stories. So yeah. anyway, uh, I grew up in the eighties, um, between five and 15, uh, I had an incredibly remarkable exposure to music from MTV and the Casey Kasem Top 40 and the fact that back then you had vinyl and you had tape and you had CD and I had parents that let me go to concerts in junior high instead of the movie or took me in some of my earliest cases. My mom took me to Bon Jovi and I saw the backstage. We had really bad seats, but I saw all this really cool stuff going on backstage and that was kind of my aha moment, if you will, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then musically, yeah, I was lucky. I play, uh, I'm only by ear player, but I played drums and uh, piano, drums and piano as a kid um, and bass and then guitar and just kind of wound my way that way. You know, eventually, you know, took me into the record industry and then kind of here in 2003, uh, and yeah, I've been here ever since. I mean, uh, you know, I, I really like to focus on the people I write with because they're a lot more obviously accomplished and, and I'm just lucky. I guess the experience I have with my own stuff just gives me access to talk to them uh, a little bit more educatedly, I suppose, about the process and bring a little more out about what they're doing. And, you know, that's an important thing with this book that that uh, and others that I try to focus on for the for the kids that are producing records today where they're using primarily samples as an example of drums. They're not really they don't really know how to mic a drum set. They can open this book up um, or any number of the other ones in my catalog and some others out there that do it. You basically what's an RE20? 
well, that's a common kick drum mic. Well, how many feet away was that RE20 from the kick drum? And then what kind of room were they in? Was it an ambient live room? Was it a dead room, which means it's carpeted and no boat off? You know, what kind of backstory went into the finding of that sound? Um, and so, man, you really, and it's not boring either. It's really kind of cool uh, to read through how these producers' minds work, sometimes creating for the first time the type of sound you hear sonically in a record that then became, uh, say, a trend, right, that other people follow. Jody Stevens, uh, it, it, Luke Bryan's uh, co-producer, Jeff Stevens' son. You know, Jeff Stevens brought him in because they needed to add that programming element, and he'd been making rap records for 15 years in the in the street, you know. So my point is you, you get these amazing uh, uh, kind of combinations of ways that these records come alive. And, and I guess if the more music you listen to, the more educated you can become. I had the privilege, I'll give you a great example, with Behind the Boards 1, I had the privilege of Tom uh, Waits, producer from the 1970s Asylum catalog, Bones Howe. Uh, he gave me his only interview he's ever done for a book, and then he, I think he's passed since, uh, or, or near it, but it, what a remarkable story. And, and you know, this guy was producing Elvis Presley's comeback special for a television network, and David Geffen just put him together with Tom Waits, and boom, 10 years later, we have what, in I think most people's opinions, is Tom Waits's really, I mean, at least my opinion, is greatest period. But so so I also feel like there's a responsibility, I want to say like with myself, but just with these types of books, to try to capture as much about how these records were organically made at that time in the studio, when it was a much more live oriented, okay, guys, we don't get to go back and punch this in later. We have to get the take now. And, and you hear that in a lot of the music. But today, though it's still created, and a lot of times to the testament of these really talented producers that can play everything, uh, and session players that are still coming in and doing that, you don't necessarily have a way to go look at how it was done, though. So hopefully these books also give a little bit of an educational reference guide, I guess, element, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess some of the way that I get a lot of these people to talk to me is because they know that, too. And they're opening up about not just their creative side, but also, you know, they're digging back 30 years and trying to remember, you know, how did we did we bring a, a Hammond B3 in on that or did? And so it just gives you, oh, well, what's a Hammond B3? You might know that sound, but you might have no clue what that instrument's called. And thankfully, with YouTube today, I see one actually behind your backdrop there. Uh, but, you know, with YouTube today, thankfully, too, with a book like this, even you can maybe get your start with this book and then go on YouTube and you can look at. Um, how some of these songs were made, if they have classic documentaries that are up there. It's just such an interactive world. What we try to do with this book is just give you a gateway to a lot of different counterparts where you can listen along while you read, you can look at how it was done while you read, you can you know watch the interviews if you don't really want to read, you can listen audio book-wise if you're not really a sit-down you know reader type like myself, um, which is a bit ironic. But that's another thing within the way I write. I try to write in a way that's for people that don't really read books because – you know what I mean? It's not a for dummies thing, but I, I try to include as much. For instance, in Nathan Chapman's chapter, it's him, Taylor Swift, him, Taylor Swift, going back and forth in conversation. That's obviously sourced material from her. But if you're a reader, it, it's going to give you a much more conversational way to understand how these records, you know, deconstruct how these records were made. And then talk about how amazing those moments were for everyone who was there to witness them in the studio at the time that they came to life, you know. Yeah, you bring back some uh, memories of the uh, the old Studer machines, a two inch tape. And <laughs> do you remember the? I'm sure you remember this, the Lindrum. Oh so, God, yeah. I remember this yeah. engineer I was working with in the you know in the 80s where the Lindrum had just come out, and every s single record that was being made had Lindrum all over it. And then fast yeah. forward, like eight years later, was maybe less than that. All of a sudden, everybody. The producers that were hot in that day, and I can't cite a specific album, you'll probably remember, but everybody started miking drums very close, very tight, and very mm -hmm. up front in the mix. So all of a sudden, the drums were no longer a supportive instrument. They were like in your face, and it sounded amazing, but it's just it just shows how the... You know the, the 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 swell of interest just goes up and then you know we're just looking for the best way to you know frame a song i guess always yeah and 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 there's guys in this book too you know like uh, shay mcnally and josh osborne do midland midland is popular right now because they're sort of a throwback really to the gary stewart sort of texas 70s bit you yeah. have a lot of styles that are also coming full circle and they're cool. I'll give you a great example. We have Brooks and Dunn's producer, Don Cook, in this book. Brooks and Dunn in the last year has gone through this boom, this like legacy kind of recognition. But you also have a lot of groups that are trying to be 
Kicks Brooks and Ronnie Dunn sort of circa 2020 that grew up listening to that music, but they're trying to find their own way to do it while still really tributing, you know, because they might have grown up in bar bands, as a lot of these guys did, playing. Jason Aldina is that rock and roll edge because he was playing country rock bars for, yeah. for 10 years before, you know, maybe 15 years. Um, you count the five that him and Michael Knox were together but couldn't find a record deal that would stick. That's another thing within this book that you get, you know, from the star side. If you're an aspiring artist, songwriter, trying to come to Nashville, you really get the true stories here of the struggles. It's not just about the successes, but they really talk about, you know, Jeff Stevens talks about having a tattoo on his ring finger. He had a pawn his uh, wedding ring and lost it at the pawn shop. Um, I mean, it's really hard time stuff, man, where, yeah. where they were really just couldn't leave here. So their kids also grew up with like, you know, maybe they had a hit and then four years went by and then they had another hit. And and so it shows all of the backstory of the incredible support networks, too, between, you know, the and, and advice within that as well for surrounding yourself with a good team, finding the right music publisher, finding the right manager. If you're an artist going to these songwriter nights, um, if you're an engineer, take any studio gig you can get. Don't be picky. Yeah. Uh, you don't know when the one crap session no one else wants to do that the boss sees you're willing to do might then get you there's so many stories in this book of that kind of thing where people took the crap assignment and then got the good one because you know they were being tested um sound engineers are are, are really underappreciated i mean they really do about half the producing um you know from the sonic side you know in terms of microphone selections and you know new outboard gear that they might be bringing in that a producer's like yeah that sounds good let's go with that yeah. that's still them making the decision to put that effect on the track but the engineer's the guy kind of the wizard behind the wizard i guess that's not a good analogy but somebody that's the co-pilot sitting right next to the please edit out that wizard behind the wizard thing it's yeah. like a co-pilot sitting aside them at the console helping to steer this big ship that is making of this record to you know to success yeah um so the partnership there and we have the best mixer in the business justin nabank in this book he does everybody and he talks he touches on the fact you know he got his start in the 1980s uh recording uh for alligator records making uh, blues albums and another co-author of mine on another book coming out in the next year willie dixon's granddaughter tamiko dixon uh we wrote a book called the real blues that also has her it's the dixon estate basically but one of those songs was that after midnight do you remember that slow after midnight yeah 1980s eric clapton yeah i always wanted to talk to the guy that recorded that but i could never find the credit and accidentally in talking to him he said well you know that michelob commercial i said you're kidding me so i actually included that in the book even though it's not a country song because i just wanted to have a a documentation of it somewhere till i have another book down the road i can stick it in but it just shows you the backdrops you know uh, uh joey moy that does all the florida georgia line uh uh records he started out producing nickelback he for really? 10 years produced number one hits with nickelback so you do have those stories too of people that started out in rock and wound up here yeah and liked it once they got here and but they bring that rock element michael knox and jason aldean are i touch on them again because they've kind of given me given credit for that big and rich of course uh, with paul worley we're doing kind of a rock country thing so you know we you try to touch on every genre subgenre in this book but it's amazing how some of them cross you know sect one another as well yeah what where do you see that um like most of your contacts most of your friends and and uh associates um who are you know, touring bands and, yeah. you know, what are they doing? And also with the, with the lockdown. And I know, I know there's probably sessions happening where, you know, people, people can, you know, people yeah. can still work. We can still write, we can still demo, we can do things, you know, on our own, we can do things virtually or whatever. But, but a lot of the guys I know are, um, you know, dedicated session players. They make their living that way and they go on the road too. Mm -hmm. So what, what are, what are most, guys doing and ladies doing right now you think they're just yeah. going down writing it's a, it's such a tough time you know it for... is a tough time and i don't know that i have a an inspiring answer for that because yeah. a lot of the people i know they can record sessions at home right um they're there i tell you what actually that answer is a mixed one because from the live side it's been a total you know handicap yeah uh, you're naturally by default you're just stuck at home um, or you're able to, if you live in the South here, like I do, you know, we have some, we have bars that have opened and music has started again on music row, yeah. but everyone's got to wear a mask. Right. So it's kind of on the stage. I think some of those places, and if you got to play a four hour set with maybe a 15 minute break and you got to wear one of those masks for two hours and then another two hours in a crowded bar. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of an experiment right now. Um, I, yeah. there's a gentleman, Ray Riddle, who's in the book, who also records my audiobook sessions downtown. He produces a lot of acts. He does a DJing gig at a place in Franklin called the Abbey. 
and they just opened back up. I'm plugging that. So if anyone likes the Abbey go there too, but uh, he does another gig on a Friday and, and, you know, it may be 15 people there one night and then five the next. And it just depends. But uh, yeah, the reliability factor, the other big sort of void that a lot of musicians fall into is because people are in this town, a lot contract, um, you know, like you're not on a salary. Like I fall into this category as well. I mean, you, you really are reliant on royalty checks and, and in some cases advances or your draw from your publisher or whatever. But there's no unemployment. There's no like PPP. Banks won't give you a, a small business loan because you might be a studio that showed a loss but has been open for years. You know, there yeah. was this sort of real big gap that musicians fell into. A lot of actors fell into. Anybody that 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 and you know, really also Nashville has a, a union for um, their session players and some and for the live players but there's a big void for especially people new to town and also people here who aren't part of musician unions and even like bmi and ascap can really only do so much they're more referral services versus yeah. say get get you know gig getters but there's on the other end of that spectrum there's been so much ingenuity with people stuck at home anyway that are still either naturally going to need to be creative where they have to to make a paycheck so they've been finding ways to do sessions it was already common to email files back and forth so that's kept the continuity of number ones on the chart you know versus as an example on a lot of streaming services by now you're seeing kind of like the shows that got shelved that were like movies that weren't going to get released and then they weren't even going to be streamed but now they're being streamed because there's yeah. nothing else to put out right with songs you haven't seen that same sufferance unlike the country charts it's been new number ones because they're still able to work from home and you know i think that's i was talking to a friend of mine uh who lives back in new york and his wife works for a banking investment banker. She works from home. He's a painter. He's painting from home. Um, my wife works from home a couple of weeks here. She goes into her office two or three days, but it, it's still a cultural change that I think is going to be permanent. And it probably is going to affect record making um, because more people have, have gotten home studios set up during this. And, you know, the downside of that is that I've already driven by two studios down on uh, off Music Row that have closed just in the last three months that were open for decades. Music Works is one of them. Uh, and there was another one. They were just open forever. And they made so many great records there. And part of the sound of those records is the sound of the room that they're recorded in. Yeah, it always is. Yeah. I mean, especially when you do it live with the, you know, the people all in place and everybody's playing yeah. together. It, it just has a- RCA, you know. RCA is a brilliant example of that. Dave Cobb took that space over. Um, my, off, my, my first office down there was right across the street from that RCA building. And I'm a little- fish in this town but me and a bunch of other little sort of renters down there and then bigger fish like these guys ben folds at the time had that space and they really 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 had a huge media presence and got the historical society to stop these condo developers from ripping down some of these historic studios but rca would be a condo building right now if not for dave cobb taking it over and chris stapleton continuing to make hits out of there so you see what i mean yeah. and also with music row about half of the studios have shifted over to a place called berry hill so, um, you know, Blackbird's over there. Uh, in fact, I shot a thing for a, a Reels Network, this heart breaking the band thing. We shot that at Station West over there last week. And that was, talk about, that's weird. You have everyone wearing these masks and those welder masks, you know, yeah. mask looking COVID things and all that. But, um, but my point is, I've, so I've gotten, I've had the chance to see a little bit of how it's been shifting uh, just from my having to go out and still work in, in, a, in a studio and, and then also still occasionally go to others. Uh, and it, it really has made the big studios that are still open concern because, you know, you still have to be able to have people come in and be feel safe there that they can record. And in, and oftentimes you think about artists are at their most vulnerable when they're in a recording studio. They're, yeah. they're very naked in the fact that they're, you know, they're taking this song they wrote out of nothing and they're trying to put it down on on tape and have it sound good and then hope a producer likes it that working with them and imagine if you have people with masks coming in or walking by you so it's just it's affected all of the the sort of organic touchy-feely part of record making i guess yeah musicians being in the same room it hasn't really interrupted though the file sending version of that so that's the best sort of answer i can give you as far as what i've seen there so what do you think is uh next for you jake as far as looking at you just celebrating your 50th book yeah um are you gonna write something about this covid experience in your next book no, you think i don't think or, so no? i think that i think that there's so many uh you know the type of books that i try to write i've got i've got four five being shopped this fall uh, i just signed with a wonderful literary agency folio uh they did The Irishman and a bunch of other cool books. And my agent, Frank Wyman, is, is a music agent. So fortunately for me, I have 
I, that's was a really lucky score for me. Uh, Beyond Beyond the Beats Volume One has already been out. That had the drummers from Motley Crue, Metallica, Foo Fighters, Jane's Addiction, Chili Peppers, CCR, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, uh, Journey, Smashing Pumpkins, Guns N' Roses, and probably a band I'm forgetting. Kenny Arnoff was in it too. But so that was Volume One. Volumes Two and Three have like everyone from the Clash, the Pixies, the Police, all the way to Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, John Lennon, you name it. So that's a series beyond the beats volume two and three that are going to be coming out in the next uh, 2021 and 2022 Nashville songwriter three is also going to be out in 2021. Um, there's a book coming out of Christmas. It's a reboot of the Freddie powers, Merle Haggard book, the spree of 83. Uh, I'm writing a book of my summer camp <laughs> right now that I went to as a kid. It was open 25 years and we're interviewing um, campers and the staff that are still there and the family and it's it's it, that's was a remarkably uh lucky project for me to finally get done that book's called 40 legends um also there's the tomiko dixon book teddy riley's memoir a lot of these books i work on for a period of time and so they're all just coming up but i think if you want to keep working i've been asked this a little bit in the last couple months of promoting this book and um doing some of these author podcasts and you get kids that are like well how do i get into this or how do i keep doing it and it's just be a workaholic always be writing Work seven days a week, work 15 hours a day. Try to work 10 hours a day if you can. But if you're if you're not, and always have lines in the water. Always have new interviews that you're doing. And the more that you can brand yourself out as an author around different series, I've been very lucky and had some dumb luck in like National Songwriter. Who would have thought anyone didn't have that and they didn't yeah. in the studio? I own the trademark in the studio. That was a blessing. Yeah. Uh, behind behind the boards, <laughs> beyond the beats. Um. So my yeah. point is, if you can brand yourself out as a as a writer. Um, where you have a title, but that underneath it, you can do a lot of different books with a lot of different bands. Or if you're like, say, a fiction writer and you have one of these, you know, series, an FBI series, and underneath it, you have one character with a lot of different books. Whatever your particular, you know, uh, medium is um, within, you know, writing, there's so many subgenres. Uh, longevity depends on you got to keep your name out there. And the only way to keep your name out there is by keeping new books out there. Um, so that's my, my, my approach is to just you know, always be working. Um, and, 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 you know, thankfully, uh, with this COVID lockdown as bad as it's been, a lot more people have been available. I interviewed Vince Gill last week, a uh, wonderful interview wow. for the upcoming national songwriter three book. And, and that, that interview had been on hold a year and a half because he'd been out on the road with the Eagles. Yeah. So I just got lucky in the fact that some of the people that have been home right now, Simon Phillips, we just added to the rock drummer uh, series. Of course, Simon Phillips is a legendary, you know, Toto and all kinds of groups. Um, so, the hope, the hope is that, you know, as an example right now, make the most that you can while you're at home and other people are at home who might have a little more time available uh, to talk to you. And even if you're like a new writer, you know, agents still have to read emails, even if they're doing it from their home, uh, looking for new writers, because the only way they make money is off of commissions. Right. And the only way really as a new writer you're going to get book deals is by having an agent. So that's another example. If you're not writing, you should always be trying to be emailing people. Uh, you know, finding a good manager can be an alternative to an agent. Um, but having a good support network around you is, is really important if you want to keep doing it. Yeah. And I think probably in music, that's true too. You know, I don't know many successful songwriters or singers or bands that don't have a really good and dedicated manager and agent with them. Yeah. So best place, Jake, to send people to buy your book. I checked that Amazon. All your books are up there. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, Amazon, uh, Audible. Yeah. Uh, we got lucky. It's the eBooks everywhere. You can get that thing at any of them. I, I I can't keep track of all the different readers, but you can get it at all of the different. It's formatable to all the different readers. Um, and I, I also direct people if they're not sure about reading the book, go to YouTube, and all you just search is behind the boards Nashville. There's over a hundred videos there, and they're not of me. You don't have to hear right. me talking. They're, okay. they're of the producers. And, you know, that's another thing I really try to focus on in these books is the narrative's there, but it's clipped. The majority of the books are the producers talking. Yeah. Um, so if you want to hear them from the horse's mouth, go right there. If you like what they're saying, please pick up a copy. Um, and, and uh, yeah, you know, also jakebrownbooks.com. I guess you got the stuff there um, that we always put up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Amazon, I hate to keep pointing, barnesandnoble.com, booksamillion.com. Um, I'd say those stories, but as an example, the COVID shutdown delayed our books publication for three months. So it's supposed to be out in June and it's going to be out at the end of August. So I can't promise that the bookstore route, it may be there, but it will be at some point, but definitely all of the digital uh, avenues are available. Great. 
Jake, it was a pleasure having you on the Dharmic oh, Evolution. So yeah, we're going to put all your links in the show notes, of course. And uh, just want to wish all of God's blessings on you, your career, your family, your new Likewise. digs. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. Please, can, yeah, and please, if uh, if I can get back in touch with you next year, we'd love to come back on when we have the new, the next few titles out. If you'd be con- considerate, I appreciate it. I'd love to have you. I'm talking to you. Okay, God bless. Thank you. Well, what did you think? 50 books and he's just getting warmed up. Covered a lot of ground today with Jake. The great Tony Brown, George Strait, Dan Huff, Mutt Lang, Taylor Swift, Nathan Chapman, Merle Haggard and the Strangers, Ringtones, CDs, vinyl, streaming, 360 deals, get this COVID out of my life. Brooks and Dunn, Jason Aldean, Justin Nabank, Joey Moy, Vince Gill, Simon Phillips, and the list goes on and on. Hope you guys really enjoyed this show with Jake Brown. I certainly did, and it was a wealth of experience and knowledge he shared with us today. Don't forget to check out his YouTube videos, and all of his links are in the show notes. Please check him out and support his work. Also, stop by the dharmicevolution.com website. Check out everything we've got there. 282 shows and counting. Uh, There are videos on there. There are blogs. There are pictures. There are songs and stories about all of the guests from around the world. Singer-songwriters, authors, speakers, thought leaders. And also, you can swing by if you're an artist or an author, speaker, thought leader. Put up your content on the Dharmic Evolution Facebook community page and watch the support you get from around the world for your brand. That's a wrap for me today. I'm your host for the Dharmic Evolution, James Kevin O'Connor. And uh, until the next time when we meet again, I'll either see you on the socials, I'll see you from the stage, and let's not forget to stay connected. It's in